podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router. And any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. Good boys and girls, two for the podcast. Today is Friday, the 21st of July. Hope you're all well. Hope you all have nice plans for the weekend. Weather's not bad today, so that's a plus. We are full nostalgia mode once again. It is the 2002-2003 Premier League season for us today. We lost three brave soldiers at the end of the last season, which was 0102, obviously. Ipswich Town, Derby County and Leicester City. But they are replaced by Manchester City returning after one season absence. And finally, City would put to bed their yo-yo spell. And West Brom and Birmingham, 
two Midlands clubs coming into the Premier League for the first time. Both sides were relegated together 16 years prior to this, and they are promoted together, which is quite cool, especially as they are such big rivals. So, manager-wise, during the season, oh, we have new stadiums. We have two new stadiums to talk about. St. Andrews and the Hawthorns. City are still at Main Road, which, as I've talked about, was a great place to go. But now we get St. Andrews and the Hawthorns. I would have a preference for the Hawthorns out of the two, but they are still both about both still good stadiums. Great atmosphere at both. Birmingham can be a little bit moody, without question. It's a really good atmosphere, but when things go bad their fan base can get a little bit twitchy and can turn on a manager very, very quickly. And the baggies, on the other hand, I I just find them a more friendlier bunch. I think the atmosphere is better at the Hawthorns. The stadium just holds the sound a bit better. It reminds me a little bit of a bigger Loftus Road, not quite as... Not quite as tight and compact, but there's something about it that reminds me of Loftus Road. Um, but both really good old stadiums. Um, Manager-wise, we only had one change during the summer. David O'Leary quit and was replaced by Terry Venables as Leeds United manager. Um, it was a bit of a strange one, I have to say. There was a disagreement allegedly over money, between him and Peter Ridsdale. It wasn't expected that O'Leary would leave, but leave he did. I assume he had become aware of the fact that Leeds were no longer really going to be able to compete at the top level. We're going to have to sell um, sell some players, and he wasn't going to have the money to replace them. There is a tremendous well, there's a couple of tremendous books actually written about Leeds in this period, and they're well worth your time if you can get your hands on them. They detail, there's one by Ridsdale himself, but they detail the spending that went on and how they financed it. Like It wasn't just players they were spending on. They were spending, they spent a fortune on fish, genuinely fish to have in the office. So, you know, just a club living beyond its means. Uh, during the season, Peter Reid was sacked by Sunderland in what was quite the shock, it must be said. They'd had a bad start, but he'd done so well with them since bringing them up. Uh, he was replaced by Howard Wilkinson. Wilk- Wilkinson would last five months before he was sacked and replaced by Mick McCarthy. Uh, Terry Venables, who'd replaced... O'Leary, he was sacked in March and Peter Reid took the Leeds job. Uh, John Tagana was sacked as manager of Fulham and replaced by Chris Coleman. Now, it was a caretaker uh, position to begin with. And Glenn Roder was forced to step down. I believe he had a brain aneurysm. I believe that's what it was. And Trevor Brooking took over as caretaker manager. Um, so our managers are Arsene Wenger at Arsenal Graham Taylor at Aston Villa Steve Bruce at Birmingham 
Graham Souness at Blackburn, Sam Allardyce at Bolton, Alan Kerbishley at Charlton, Claudio Ranieri at Chelsea, David Moyes at Everton, Chris Coleman at Fulham, Peter Reid at Leeds, Gerard Houllier at Liverpool, Kevin Keegan at Manchester City, Alex Ferguson with Manchester United, Steve McLaren with Middlesbrough, Sir Bobby Robson still with Newcastle, Gordon Strachan with Southampton, Mick McCarthy, Sunderland, Glenn Hodlett, Spurs, Gary Megson was manager of West Brom, and Trevor Brooking ended the season as caretaker manager of West Ham. Um, I think the big thing with City was the Keegan factor, because obviously he'd brought Newcastle up and came real close to winning the title, and I think there was an expectation that he might repeat the trick with, um, with Manchester City. Obviously, at this point, none of us had any idea that at the end of this season, English football would change forever with the arrival of Roman Abramovich. So at the time, it was United and Arsenal levels above everybody else. And then you had Liverpool and other clubs lead sometimes, uh, but obviously not anymore. Um, A few of the clubs that would compete for top four, Chelsea were one of them. And the, but the thought was, there's definitely room for another club to crash this party. Spurs were very much a mid-table team. Everton had lost a lot of their luster and had become a bottom-half team for the most part, although Moyes would sort of yo-yo between top and bottom half. Um, Aston Villa were a little bit rudderless at the time as well, because at the start of the Premier League era, you had the big three, Liverpool, United, Arsenal, And then you had the other three members of what was then known as the Big Six, which was Villa, Everton, and Spurs. They were the six glamour clubs. Chelsea weren't even considered to be on that level. Chelsea had spent their way into that level under Ken Bates. Wasn't aware of the fact at the time, or people weren't aware of the fact at the time, that they were about to go bust as well. There was a lot of focus on Leeds selling players, but it was overlooked how bad Chelsea's financial situation were, or was. So the feeling was there is a spot here for another club to gate crash and make themselves a top four regular because no one thought Chelsea could do it. Leeds had fallen off. Everton and Villa weren't to be considered and neither were Spurs. And City were looked at as a, you know, a big regional club, obviously in United shadow. But with a manager now that had proven himself in the top flight, had come very close to winning a Premier League title and had a, you know, an aura about him that he played great football. He could attract big name players. So I think that's what the expectation was of City at the time. Uh, In terms of captains, Patrick Vieira at Arsenal, Steve Stoneton at Villa, Jeff Kenna at Birmingham, Gary Flickcroft at Blackburn, Goodney Bergson at Bolton, Graham Stewart at Charlton, Marcel Desailly at Chelsea, David Weir at Everton. Uh, David Weir, obviously now the technical director of Brighton Hove Albion, I should say. Um, Andy Melville at Fulham, Dominic Matteo at Leeds, Sammy Hippia at Liverpool, Ali Benarabia at Manchester City, Roy Keane at Manchester United, Gareth Southgate at Middlesbrough, Alan Shearer at Newcastle, Jason Dodd at Southampton, Michael Gray at Sunderland, Teddy Sheringham at Tottenham, Sean Gregan at West Brom, 
and Joe Cole at West Ham. Kit manufacturers. So, um, Arsenal, of course, still have Nike. Nike also have Leeds United and the big get for them, Manchester United, who've been wearing Umbro all this time. Nike finally managed to break in and nab them. Uh, Nike also had Sunderland that season. Diodora made the Aston Villa kits, and that was the only club that they manufactured for. Lecoq Sportif had Birmingham City, Charlton Athletic, and Manchester City. Blackburn Rovers kits were made by Kappa, as were Tottenham's kits that year. Reebok still had Bolton and Liverpool. Chelsea had Umbro. And having once been kind of the main player in this area, Chelsea were the only club whose kits were made by Umbro that season. Uh, Everton were with Puma, the only club that year. Fulham, Newcastle were made by Adidas. Area were making the Middlesbrough kits. Southampton's were made by Saints, so self-made. And West Brom's were also self-made by a company that they owned themselves called The Baggies. And finally then, it is Fila for West Ham. Front of shirt, we have Arsenal shifting from Sega Dreamcast to O2 in what would be a fairly short-lived partnership. Um, the Rover were making the kits for Aston Villa. Phones for you for Birmingham. AMD processors for Blackburn. Reebok for Bolton. Old Sport, who position themselves as a competitor to Gatorade and Powerade, apparently, made the Charlton kits. Fly Emirates were still with Chelsea. Kijian, who were a Chinese telecommunications company, made the kits for Everton. Betfair for Fulham. I think that might be the first time we had a gambling company as a front-of-shirt advertiser in the Premier League. I'm, I'm fairly certain. I don't think I've talked about one so far, so this has to be. Betfair with Fulham in 02-03 when gambling started to uh, stream into the Premier League. Uh, Leeds still had Strongbow, Liverpool at Carlsberg, Manchester City had First Advice, United at Vodafone, Middlesbrough had Dilophone, uh, moving on from BT Selnut, um, Newcastle still had NTL, Southampton had Friends Providence, Sunderland had Red Vardy, Spurs changed from Holson to Thompson, the travel company that went bust, uh, West, Bromage, West Bromage Building Society, sponsoring West Brom, and Doc Martens still with West Ham United. This was probably not a classic season. United won the title. They finished five points clear of Arsenal. This was a good season, though. This wasn't one that will have jumped to your mind, but this was a good season with a lot of players really starting to emerge and different iterations of teams starting to emerge. So if we, if we j- jump into transfers, um, and thankfully this does start with Arsenal, though it does not go alphabetically after that. Uh, Arsenal signed 
Gilberto Silva that summer. And that was the final piece in the puzzle, really, for the team that would become the Invincibles in our next season. It took him a little bit of time to settle in and the partnership with him and Vieira just to click. Once it did, though, they were incredible. They also signed Pascal Seagan, uh, centre-back from Lille. Most people will remember him. Uh, moving on, Liverpool decided to have one of the worst transfer windows in the history of transfer windows. So rather than signing Nicholas and Elka, who they already had on loan, they wasted a ton of money on El Hadj Juff. Then they signed Salif Jiao. They signed Bruno Sheru, uh, Anthony Latalak, Florence Cinema Pongol, Alu Diara, and Patrice Luzi, as well as Michael Foley Sheridan. Um, being promoted from the academy. All of Liverpool's permanent signings had one thing in common. They all spoke French, which shows the manager had changed how he was operating in the transfer market. Manchester United broke the transfer record for a defender with the signing of Rio Ferdinand from Leeds United. They also signed Ricardo from Real Real Valladolid. I don't remember him. He's a goalkeeper. Don't have any memory of him at all. Newcastle signed Jonathan Woodgate uh, during the season, also from Leeds. They signed Hugo Viana, who's now the sporting director of Sporting Lisbon. They signed him from Sporting. Uh, He was hugely talented, but never quite worked out. They signed Titus Bramble and Darren Ambrose. Both from Ipswich. Titus Bramble was so highly rated at the time and is now kind of a figure of fun because he was just so error prone. He had all the skills. He just didn't have the focus and concentration and the the mental side of the game. But he was big. He was strong. He was powerful. He was really quick. He was a good 1v1 defender, but he had no awareness outside of that. Leeds United signed Nick Barnby, and that was the only signing they made, um, while selling a bunch of players. You know, during this year, uh, Rio Ferdinand, gone in the summer, along with Robbie Keane, will come to him. During the season, they sold Jonathan Woodgate, Robbie Fowler, and Lee Bowyer. That's five of your first 13 players gone and only Nick Barnby coming in. And this is a Nick Barnby who hadn't done particularly well at Liverpool. Um, Chelsea didn't sign anybody because they couldn't really afford to. They were in financial peril at this point. Now, as it turned out, it didn't really matter. Um, West Ham signed Bowyer, they signed David Noble, uh, Yusuf Sofian, Gary Breen, Rufus Brevet, Raymond van der Howe. Uh, didn't spend much money at all. And I think, I think they were also in some fairly serious financial trouble at the time. Um, Aston Villa signed Marcus Allback. Ulysses De La Cruz, Stefan Postma, and Mark Kinsler. If you're wondering why Aston Villa fell from 
challenging for the title in the early years, you know, being one of the big six at the beginning of the Premier League era, having won a league title and a European Cup in the 80s, if you're wondering how it is that they fell into mediocrity, summers like this will be a big part of that. Tottenham signed Robbie Keane. They signed Rowan Ricketts. Diego Bortolozzo, I don't remember him, and Lars Hirschfeld. They also signed Jamie Redknapp from Liverpool on a free. He had a lot of injury problems. Um, Blackburn signed Dwight York. They signed David Thompson. They signed Andy Todd and Sebastian Pelzer. Southampton signed David Prutton, Michael Svensson, Antti Niemi, Danny Higginbottom, Andre Kinchelskis, I had forgotten he went to Southampton, I must say. Matt Crowell, don't remember him. Uh, Middlesbrough signed Massimo Macaroni, who would flop. George Boatang, Janino Palista returning to the club for a second turn after a successful time in Spain with Atletico Madrid. Uh, Michael Ricketts, Frank Quadru, Chris Riggett, Keith Gilroy, all arriving in Middlesbrough. Fulham signed Facundo Sava. Don't remember him at all. Carlton signed Gary Rowett. They signed Herman Horiderson and Paul Rachoka. I don't remember him. From the United Reserves. They also signed Robbie Musto and Jesper, yeah, Jesper Blomquist on free transfers. Everton signed Richard Wright, Lee Carsley, Rodrigo Beckham, Espen Bardson, Joseph Yobo, and Ibrahim Said. Bolton signed David Holdsworth, if I'm not mistaken, is the twin brother of Dean Holdsworth. I think I could be, I could be wrong. I think he is. Let me just check this now. Dean Holdsworth. Yes, twin brother, David. They were both at... Yeah, because Dean was at Bolton. They signed David to, I suppose, keep him happy or whatever. But uh, other than that, I don't think David Holdsworth was a Premier League. No, he's a lower league player for the majority of his career. Um, had a Had a long career. Played nearly... 500 league matches between 1986 and 2005 when he finished off playing for Gretna in Scotland, a club, unfortunately, that doesn't exist anymore because of uh, because of a scoundrel owner more than anything. Um, but yeah, Watford, Sheffield United, Birmingham, Walsall, Bolton, Scarborough and Gretna. Uh, fair play. Um, they also signed Delroy Facey, Kangana, and Dia. JJ Akacha was the big get for them, but they also signed Chris Armstrong from Spurs, who'd obviously been a good player for a long time. And Ivan Campo arrived as well. Sunderland signed Tori Andre Flo, Matt Piper, Marcus Stewart, Stephen Wright, Mart Poom, Phil Babb. Thomas Meyer and Ewan McLean. Uh, Manchester City signed Nicholas Anelka, taking advantage 
of Liverpool's stupidity. They also would sign Robbie Fowler, Matthias Vossel, who I don't remember, Sylvain Distan, David Samuel, Mikhail Bischoff, Bischoff and Mark Vivian Foe in on loan. Um, yeah. Big names, big money spent. This is the Keegan impact. West Brom signed Lee Hughes. Lee Hughes had been a non-league player. And let me just make sure I have the timeline of this right. Yeah, so he's playing for Kidderminster. It was announced that West Brom, in 1997, West Brom had signed Lee Hughes. And West Brom fans thought they'd signed... It was announced announced that they'd signed Hughes. And West Brom fans thought they'd signed Mark Hughes and were very excited. And when it turned out it was a fellow they hadn't heard of before who'd been playing in non-league, they were all very upset. But he actually did brilliantly the first time around. Like, really, really well the first time around. Um, 14 and 30 in 41 in all competitions, 32 and 45, 17 and 43, 23 in 48. They then sold him to Coventry for just over 5 million because he had a 5 million buyout clause in his contract. So Coventry paid 5 million and one quid. Didn't go all that well at Coventry. He didn't seem to settle at the club, even though Coventry and West Brom are fairly close by. Um, He did score 14 goals in the first season, but for some reason they were open to selling him. I think they got, they got half their money back and sold him. Whether there was problems, I don't know. So he comes back to West Brom. Now, this season that we're in here, this would be a disaster. He'd score one goal in 24 games in all competitions and didn't score in the league for them. He would do okay the following season, and then he would be convicted of causing death by driving dangerously. He would go to prison for three years, and when he came back, he played for Oldham, Blackpool, Notts County, Port Vale, Forest Green, Kidderminster, Worcester City, Telford United, Worcester again, Mickelover Sports, Grantham Town, Nuneaton Borough, Cradley Town, and Stourport Swifts. Now, he's been, I believe, player manager of most of those teams um, at the end there. I think Mickelover, Grantham, Nuneaton and Cradley. I think he was player manager for all of them. But what's notable is that he played for Stourport Swifts in 2021-22. He is 47 years of age now, so he would have been 45 going into that t- that season. Um, and he's still, he's still playing. I, I don't know if he's still playing. I don't know if he's still playing at this moment. He definitely played in that season. I don't know what's happened since. But yeah, he um he's had an incredibly long career and he 
probably screwed his career from what it should have been with that stupid, stupid thing that he did. Because at the time, he was 28 years of age. And he was very highly thought of. He had a couple of struggling seasons, but he was still very highly thought of. And he cost himself probably millions. Um, even then, like players were earning 20, 30 grand a week. So, you know, players like him, top players were earning double that, treble that. But he probably cost himself a couple of million quid. Um, yeah, such as such as thing it is the way it is. Uh, Birmingham signed Clinton Morrison, Alu Cisse, Robbie Savage, Jamie Clapham, Matt Upson, Stephen Clements, Tom Williams, and Andy Marriott. And that is all of our transfers. So, league table. Manchester United top 83 points, five points clear of Arsenal. Newcastle finished third. Chelsea fourth. Liverpool fifth. Blackburn sixth. Everton seventh. Southampton eighth. Man City ninth. Spurs 10th, Middlesbrough 11th, then Charlton, Birmingham, Fulham, Leeds, Leeds in 15th, having been a European team for multiple years. Aston Villa in 16th, Bolton Wanderers surviving in 17th. West Ham going down, West Brom going back down, and Sunderland going down. Sunderland went down with 19 points, which is an embarrassing total from 38 games. They won only four games all season. West Brom went down on 26 points, which isn't great, but it's a lot better than 19. West Ham went down on 42 points. If you got 42 points now, you'd probably finish 14th or 15th. They got relegated with 42 points. This is what I mean when I say the league used to be more competitive. Now we get higher points totals at the top, but lower points totals at the bottom because the gulf is so much bigger between the top and the bottom in so many different ways. You look at the disparity in revenue between City, Liverpool and United and teams that are down at the foot of the table. Like look at last season with Southampton with Leicester and with Leeds. And you look at the disparity between what they're earning per year and it's absolutely enormous. And then look at the disparity in terms of the wage bills because there's always been disparity in terms of wage bills. Going into the season, Manchester United were paying significantly more wages, say, than Sunderland, but they weren't paying £250 more in wages. But likewise, they weren't earning... 400 million more across the course of a season. With the Champions League money being what it is, teams that are in the Champions League year upon year upon year are just so much richer. And it's Champions League really that drives your commercial revenue. So, you know, let's, let's just take a club like Bournemouth, for example. They're never going to be able to really compete with the elite. The only way it can happen is a fluke season like when Leicester won the league. 
And it's a shame because the league was, in my mind, the league was more competitive back then. It just was. There was more competitive balance. Even if the same teams were winning the league back then, there was more competitive balance. There was no Man City. There was no Chelsea. United had a big financial advantage. But at the same time, teams were able to match them. Arsenal have won two of the five titles leading into this one. You know, Newcastle would spend big. Now, clubs would get themselves in trouble as Chelsea and Leeds did trying to compete, but they they knew that if they got into the Champions League, it would help and it would balance things out. And they might be able to then spend for two summers and then not spend the third summer and start a new cycle then and spend for two summers. If they could get into the Champions League, they could they could survive like that. And not only that, they could turn profit like that. Now, I mean, the, the, the gap is just outrageous. Um, top scorers. Ruud van Nistelrooy had 25. Thierry Henry had 24. James Beattie, 23 for Southampton. Mark Viduka had 20. Michael Owen had 19. Alan Shearer had 17. Nicholas Anelka had 15. Gianfranco Zola, Robert Perez, Harry Kuehl and Paul Scholes all scored 14. Uh, we do not have numbers for assists in this season, but we have hat-tricks by Michael Owen for Liverpool against Man City, James Beattie for Southampton against Fulham, Ruud van Nistelrooy for United against Newcastle, Robbie Keane for Tottenham against Everton, Thierry Henry for Arsenal against West Ham, Ruud van Nistelrooy for United against Fulham, Mark Viduka for Leeds against Charlton. Paul Scholes for United against Newcastle. United won the league that year and beat the team to finish third, 6-2. Um, that's how good United were. Michael Owen scored four for Liverpool in a 6-0 win over West Brom. Van Nistelrooy got his third hat-trick of the season against, against Charlton. Jermaine Pennant and Robert Perez scored hat-tricks as Arsenal beat Southampton. 6-1, first time in Premier League history. We'd had two hat-tricks by teammates in the same game, I believe. And then a week, well, four days later, Freddie Lundberg got a hat-trick for Arsenal against Sunderland. Um, a lot of hat-tricks there, only three of them before the turn of the year. And then a run of them through March, April and May. Two in January, one in March, to be fair. Three in April, three in May. So six in the last six weeks of the season, uh, which is quite unusual. Most wins, Manchester United, 24. Sorry, 25. T- 25. Uh, mo- fewest wins, Sunderland with four. Most draws, Bolton with 14. Fewest draws, Leeds with five. Most losses, Sunderland with 27. Fewest losses, United with five. Most goals scored, Arsenal, 85. Fewest goals scored, Sunderland. Most goals conceded West Brom and Sunderland. Fewest goals conceded Manchester United. So, Sunderland, fewest wins, most losses, fewest goals scored, and most goals conceded. That is the absolute perfect recipe for relegation. Um, Blackburn had the most clean sheets with 16. Spurs had the least with 5. That's that's embarrassing for them. Even the teams that got relegated got more clean sheets. 
Frank, Frank Quadru of Middlesbrough was sent off three times. Uh, even Campo of Bolton was booked 13 times. They were the most in the league. Uh, manager of the month, Glenn Hoddle in August, Arsene Wenger in September, Gerard Houllier in October, David Moyes in November, Gordon Strachan in December, Bobby Robson in January, Alan Kerbishley in February, Glenn Roder in March, and Alex Ferguson in April. Uh, your manager of the month, sorry, manager of the year was Alex Ferguson once again. Player of the month, Sylvain Wiltord in August, Thierry Henry in September, Zola in October, Beatty in November, Shearer in December, Scholes in January, Perez in February, Gerard in March, and Ruud van Nistelrooy in April. There was a six-man list for PFA Player of the Year. Um, Gianfranco Zola, Alan Shearer, Paul Scholes, Ruud van Nistelrooy, James Beatty, and the winner was Thierry Henry. Uh, for Young Player of the Year, again, a six-man list. Wayne Rooney, Scott Parker, John O'Shea, Jermaine Defoe, Craig Bellamy, and the winner, Jermaine Genus. Your Football Writers Player of the Year was also Thierry Henry completing the sweep. Your Team of the Year, Brad Friedel in goal, Stephen Carr, Saul Campbell, William Gallas, and Ashley Cole as the back four. Vieira, Scholes, Kieran Dyer, and Robert Perez as the midfield. Henri and Shearer picked as the forwards, despite the fact that Ruud van Nistelrooy scored the most goals in the league. Carlo Cudicini won the Golden Gloves. Thierry Henry was voted goal of the season for an absolute cracker against Spurs. United won the the Fair Play Award. I'm not really sure how, but they did. And that was that. Uh, FA Cup, Arsenal crowned FA Cup winners, beating Southampton 1-0 in the final. Robert Perez with the only goal of the game on 38 minutes. Arsenal's team on the day. David Seaman in goal, Loren right back, Martin Keown and Oleg Lushny in the middle. No Saul Campbell, he was injured. Ashley Cole at left back, Perez, Parler, Silva and Lumberg in midfield. No Vieira. Burkamp and Henri up front. On the bench, Stuart Taylor, Colo Toure, Giovanni van Bronckhorst, Sylvan Wiltord and Nuanku Kanu. Wiltord came on for Burkamp with 13 minutes left. So Arsenal went and won the FA Cup without Saul Campbell, best centre-back in the country at the time, and Vieira, best midfielder in the country at the time. It's a fair effort. I know it was I know it was Southampton, so it wasn't like they were playing one of the big boys, but still. Uh, Southampton's team, Andy Niemi in goal, Chris Baird, Klaus Lundigvam, Michael Svensson and Wayne Bridge at the back, Paul Telfer, Manny Oakley, Anders Svensson and Chris Marsden in midfield, Brett Ormeroyd and James Beatty up front. Paul Jones, the sub-goalkeeper, had to come on on 66. Uh, Paul Williams and Danny Higginbottom were unused subs. 
Fabrice Fernandez was a late replacement for Chris Baird at right back, and Joe Tessin came on for Anders Fenson with 15 minutes to go as Southampton threw everything at trying to get an equaliser. Um, League Cup final, Liverpool 2, Manchester United 0. Steven Gerrard on 39 with a deflected shot that looped over Fabian Barthez, and Michael Owen put it to bed on 86. Uh, Liverpool love playing in cup finals at Cardiff. Love it. So couldn't possibly have lost. Uh, Jersey Dudek was in goal. Jamie Carragher was right back. Stefan Ancho and Sammy Hippia were in the middle. And John Arnarisa at left back. Marcus Babel at this point is suffering from, I think it's Guillain-Barra syndrome, a Guillain-Barra disease, um, and is in a wheelchair. And that's why Carragher's playing right back. Um, Elhaj Juff started on the right wing. Dee Hammond and Stevie Gerrard were in the middle. And Danny Murphy played off the left. Heskey and Owen up front. Our fix said Traore, Schmitzer, Biscan and Barros on the bench. Um, Barros came on for Heskey and then had to go off again and was replaced by Schmitzer. And Biscan came on for Geoff in the last minute. United's team was Fabian Barthez, Gary Neville, Wes Brown, Rio Ferdinand, Mikel Silvestre, Beckham, Keane, Varane, Giggs, Scholes, Van Nistelrooy. And off the bench, they had Carroll, Phil Neville, Butt, O'Shea, and Oli Gunnar Solskjaer, who came on on 74 as United gambled to try and win the game. Um, I remember that cup final. It was, it was very enjoyable. Very, very enjoyable. Always a nice day out. Um, that's it. That is our 0102 season. A good season, not not one that will immediately spring to mind, but a good, strong season with a very, very good Manchester United team, a good Arsenal team who the following year would be absolutely incredible. A really good Newcastle team, pretty strong Chelsea. Liverpool team that were decent. But we saw the fall off of Leeds. We saw the relegation of Sunderland. We saw Aston Villa continue to slide into mediocrity. We saw Manchester City emerge as a team with ambition. Yeah, all in all, a good season. We'll take a break when we come back. News and gossip. See you soon. Right, welcome back. So, we have some news. Uh, Burnley have completed the signing of James Trafford from Manchester City in a deal that could be worth up to 19 million quid. Uh, Trafford was the goalkeeper for England at the recent under-21 Euros and didn't concede a single goal, saved a last-minute penalty in the final, and then made an even better save on the follow-up. Uh, he's a talented goalkeeper, but 19 million for a fellow that doesn't have a single Premier League game under his belt is a little bit excessive. But that and an upcoming transfer of Carlos Borges to West Ham will push City past the £300 million mark brought in from academy players over the last six years. 
And there's still a couple more deals to be done this summer, including potentially Taylor Howard Bellis leaving. City's academy is incredible. It is an absolute talent factory. It produces players for the first team. It produces players to sell, to raise money, to put back into the first team. It produces countless players to send on loan. If we look at last season in the championship, you had Burnley promoted, Howard Bellis playing a vital role. You had Sheffield Sheffield United promoted with James McAtee and Tommy Doyle playing key roles. You had Coventry in the playoff final with uh, Wilson Esbrandt, who's going to Reims, I believe, on loan this season, and Callum Doyle, who's joined Leicester on loan, both playing vital roles. So City's influence is, is getting stronger and stronger. That academy is making a real case to be considered the number one academy in world football. Um, speaking of City, uh, we got the here we go from the man who says here we go, but it turns out that it's here we go. Uh, Max Eberl, the sporting director of RB Leipzig, said there is no agreement between the club and Manchester City over the Croatian defender. A lot has been written and the latest in- information about Josko surprised us all. Currently, we're still very far apart. As you can see, Josko is still here. He didn't have a medical check. There was claims he'd taken part of his medical, it turns out. That was not true. There is no agreement, not even remotely an agreement. Interesting. Very interesting to see how that one plays out. My assumption is City will get him, but he might have to push a little bit. He doesn't seem overly pushed on leaving. He seems happy enough where he is. Um, Arnaut Denjuma is in talks to sign on loan for Everton. He came close to heading to Everton in January and then at the last minute did a little bit of a 180 and uh, found his way to Spurs instead, having already agreed terms with Everton. Burnley have signed Nathan Redmond on a two-year contract. He spent last season with Besiktas, formerly obviously of Southampton and Norwich City. Danny Welbeck has said that one good season is not enough. I'm not sure if he's talking about his career or, or Brighton Hove Albion, but I fully agree, Danny. Uh, Jordi Alba is joining into Miami, where Lionel Messi and Sergio Busquets are in situ, and soon potentially to be joined by Andreas Iniesta as the band gets back together for one tour. Uh, in the Women's World Cup, Nigeria and Canada drew nil-nil. And Christine Sinclair, the all-time record goal scorer in women's international football, missed a penalty to miss out on the chance to become the first player to score at six FIFA World Cups. Now, she's still got two more games, so I'm guessing, don't know for certain, but I'm guessing she will get another opportunity to become the first person to score at six World Cups, which really is an incredible achievement. Like, what age is Christine Sinclair? She has to be 40, doesn't she? She's 
She is 40. She turned 40 last month. So this is going to be her last World Cup, you would imagine. But you just, you never know. Like, she's still playing for Portland Thorns, has done for the last 10 years. To my knowledge, she hasn't announced that she's retiring. But I'm guessing, I'm guessing she will retire from international football after this season. She hasn't played a lot this year, whether that was injury or keeping herself in check for the World Cup. She's got 10 goals in total at World Cups. Um, Results so far, I'll just go group by group. In Group A, New Zealand beat Norway and Switzerland beat the Philippines. In Group B, Australia beat the Republic of Ireland and Nigeria beat Canada. In Group C... Spain have beaten Costa Rica. Uh, Japan will play Zambia in the other match in that group. In Group D, it'll be England versus Haiti in their first game and Denmark versus China. In Group E, we'll have the United States versus Vietnam and the Netherlands versus Portugal. In Group F, it will be France versus Jamaica and Brazil versus Panama. In Group G, Sweden will take on South Africa. Italy will take on Argentina. And in Group H, Germany against Morocco, Colombia against South Korea. So that's where we stand right now. I wasn't aware that the Welsh didn't qualify. But now I know. Um, Yeah, so the World Cup obviously kicked off our time yesterday, but the day before in Australia. Well, no. Yes, in Australia, it kicked off in the 20th. In where we are, it kicked off on the 19th because of the time difference. Um, and it will run for a full month. 32 countries from six confederations, 10 venues. What are the venues like? Uh, Stadium Australia, Sydney Football Stadium, Lang Park, Melbourne Rectangular Stadium, Perth Rectangular Stadium, which is a place that uh, that I've spent time in the past. Really nice stadium, actually, to be fair, out in East Perth. It used to be known as the Perth Oval. Now it's the uh, Perth Rectangular Stadium. They do have uh, sponsor names, but for its... FIFA don't allow them to use the sponsorship name, so this is just what they're calling them. Uh, and Hindmarsh Stadium in Adelaide. There's also four stadiums in New Zealand, Eden Park in Auckland, Wellington Regional Stadium in Wellington, obviously, Forsyth Bar Stadium in Dunedin, and Waikato Stadium in Hamilton. Some great rugby stadiums there. Really great rugby stadiums, but really good stadiums on the whole. Uh, Forsyth Bar Stadium is, I think, I haven't been to it. It it hasn't been built all that long, I don't think. Uh, Open 2011. Um, If you haven't seen it, go and have a look. Just, Just go and have a look. And imagine how cool it would be to watch a game there with the view and all the rest. Um... On a less happy note, uh, Gigi Donnarumma and his partner were attacked and robbed 
at their home in Paris. The couple were targeted by several people and tied up at their flat in the 8th district in the centre of the capital, police sources have told the French media. They are then said to have escaped to a nearby hotel. The alarm was raised, was raised by hotel staff and the couple were taken to hospital. Unconfirmed reports say the attackers made off with jewellery watches and luxury leather goods worth as much as half a million. Um, the footballer was lightly injured while his partner was unharmed. Well, at least that's, at least there's that. At least she wasn't harmed and his injuries are, are minor. Um, Marquinhos and Angel de Maria have previously been burgled, as were Thiago Silva, Dani Alves, and Eric Chupa Moulton. This does seem to be a bit of an issue then in Paris, which is um, which is less than ideal. Less than ideal. Uh, PSG might want to might want to do something about that. Maybe find a more secure place for their star players to live, somewhere where they can have 24-hour security in the building. Uh, Harry Kane will not sign a new deal with Tottenham and could be open to joining Bayern Munich. I think he's very much open to joining Bayern Munich. Kane will consider leaving Tottenham if the club decides to accept a transfer fee but won't force a move. That's because he'd probably prefer to leave for free and pick pick his own poison, but I think he'll go to Bayern. Aston Villa have agreed a deal for Bayer Leverkusen winger Moussa Diaby. I think this is a brilliant bit of business by them. I think it's absolutely brilliant to see Villa taking big swings. They got Pau, Pau, Lopez, Pau Torres. Pau Lopez. They got Pau Torres. Pau Lopez was a goalkeeper, wasn't he? He played for Roma at some point. Wasn't very good. Uh, Pau Torres, good centre-back. Moussa Diaby, really fun winger. Tottenham have identified Douglas Luiz and Conor Gallagher as potential replacements for Pierre-Emile Hoysberg. I, I don't believe anything that I see in the mail, to be honest. West Ham are close to winning the race for Carlos Borges, who's also wanted by Borussia Dortmund and Eintracht Frankfurt, after offering 14 million, 14 million for the 19-year-old Portuguese winger who has never kicked the Premier League football. Manchester City are considering Bradley Barcola as a potential replacement for Riyad Mahrez. Very fun player. Paris Saint-Germain are also keeping an eye on Barcola. Manchester United are set to submit their opening bid to Atalanta for Rasmus Hoysland, who is wanted by PSG. The price that I'm seeing is just... If United pay it, I'd be, I'd be shocked, to be honest. David De Gea has rejected an offer of 4.3 million a year to join Inter Milan with the 32-year-old Spanish keeper holding out for an after-tax salary of 8.7 million a year after being released by Manchester United. That is considerably less than he was on at United. Um, I'm surprised he hasn't been snapped up by a Saudi club yet, to be totally honest. Bayern Munich's Senegalese forward Sadio Mane has agreed a deal in principle to join Al Nazir. Marco Silva, the Fulham manager, has been offered a two-year deal worth forty million to take charge of Saudi Arabian side Al Ali. Imagine what they'd offer to a top manager. Like he's a good manager, but imagine what they'd offer to like Pep or Klopp or Simeone 
or Antonio Conte, who is currently available, though I don't think would take that job. Alali are also targeting Thomas Partey. I don't think Thomas Partey is allowed to move this summer. Brighton are closing in on a 15 million deal for Igor Julio of Fiorentina. He's a good defender. West Ham are stepping up their interest in James Ward-Prowse and are prepared to let Flynn Downs move in the other direction. Oh, that would be an absolute stinker of a move. Uh, Paris Saint-Germain midfielder Marco Verratti is a potential target for Liverpool. No, he absolutely is not. It, it is uh, He just isn't in any way a target for Liverpool. Just no. If PSG sell Kylian Mbappe this summer, they will immediately make a move for Bernardo Silva. Okay. Manchester City are weighing up a £103 million move for Nicolo Barella. I don't think they are. I really don't think they are. Manchester United are keeping their options open about a permanent deal for Johnny Evans with the 35-year-old defender having rejoined the club on a short-term contract after leaving Leicester. He's meant to go to Everton. I don't know what happened. Um, Eric Ten Hag has told Harry Maguire he doesn't want him to leave the club. Despite taking the captaincy off him, I think he's desperate for him to leave, to be honest. Crystal Palace, West Ham and Leeds have all registered interest in Divock Origi, but Origi will have offers from Saudi. Albanian striker Armando Broja is set to stay at Chelsea and fight for his place, despite reports linking him to West Ham. West Ham would be a good move. Him and Skamaka would, would work together. I am convinced of that. I do think Fulham might come looking if Mitrovic makes the move, though. Nottingham Forest have set their sights on signing David Soria from Hetafe. Good keeper. Don't know that I put all my faith in him as a starter at the Premier League, but good keeper. Burnley are close to signing Espanyol's under-19 Italian international, Luca Colawashi. Don't know him. Colawasho. Don't know him. Uh, Sevilla are willing to offload Yusuf Naziri, who has been linked to West Ham in previous transfer windows. He would work as the kind of the for now signing to replace Mitrovic. So you got him and Broya or him and Broby, that would be pretty good. Reading have agreed a deal for Manchester United's Welsh under 21 midfielder Charlie Savage to join on a permanent basis. That's the son of Robbie Savage, I believe. Right, folks, that's it. That's all I've got for today. Thank you, as always. I will see you Monday. Have a very, very good weekend. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.